When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I used the review and refine feature, and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. Chapter 24, Rita Skeeter's Scoop. Everybody got up late on Boxing Day. The Gryffindor common room was much quieter than it had been lately, many yawns punctuating the lazy conversations. Hermione's hair was bushy again. She confessed to Harry that she had used liberal amounts of Sleek Easy's hair potion on it for the ball. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Matt Potts. And I'm back on Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Thanks for holding down the fort while I was gone. The fort did not fly away. It did not. Thanks Kept it to you. Firmly rooted to the ground. And it was so fun to listen to these amazing conversations that you had with other people. I love those conversations with those wonderful people. I have to say, I also missed you, and I'm happy that you're back for this this conversation. Well, we just have a couple of announcements before we get to your story, Matt, which is that. Everyone, if you want to hear our episodes ad-free, you can subscribe on iTunes or, of course, on Patreon. And also, we have another Harry Potter pilgrimage, August 31st to September 3rd. We're actually going to be going to the north of England for this. We're going to be going to the Yorkshire area because we're going to be reading Deathly Hallows and, you know, the Dean Forest and all the places where the kids are sort of hiding in the woods while on the run. We are going to be 
in that space. And we're going to be reading the book through the theme of wandering, wondering when we are on a journey to somewhere, when we are on a journey and need to just accept exactly where we are, what it means to, you know, always be wandering and not necessarily lost. This trip will be with me and the wonderful Colette Potts. You can find out more at readingandwalkingwith.com. And then, Matt, our Patreon perk today is going to be our interactions with journalists, much like Rita Skeeter. You and I have been interviewed from time to time by the Rita Skeeters of the world. So, yeah, we're going to talk about some of our funnier experiences interacting with journalists and talking about ourselves. Great. You are telling a story on the theme of rejection today. When is the time you were rejected? I've been rejected a lot in my life, actually. I feel like anybody who, like, applies for a lot of things, jobs or admissions or whatever, like, you know, just by virtue of the fact that there are a lot of great people in the world, uh, you're not going to get everything you apply for. But the rejection I want to talk about is more personal, but also more innocent, right? So as our listeners know, I have a dog whose name is Suki. Suki, it's important to say, loves everyone and everything, possibly too much. <laughs> and it's a universal love. I mean, just any person she loves. But I should also say that she loves me most, <laughs> right? So, you know, sometimes dogs have this. They have a, a particular attachment that's stronger. She loves everyone. When, when you come to our house, Vanessa, when anyone comes to our house, she runs and jumps and spins around and tries to lick the inside of your mouth. And that's just what she does, right? She succeeded the other day with me. That's right. When I come home with anyone else, she runs past everyone to get to me. So when we come home as a family, and she loves our children, she loves Colette. Like, if I'm the one bringing up the rear, coming in last, Suki darts in and around, dodging people who are have their hands out trying to love her to get to me first. And then she jumps around and she loves yeah. me, right? And I love her too. She's a sweet dog. A couple of years after we got her, maybe a year and a half after we got her. So she's, a, she's no longer a puppy, but she's a young dog. Um, my family and I took an international trip. We left for two and a half weeks, and because of that, Suki needed to get cared for by someone else. We couldn't, we weren't going to take her with us to Iceland, which is where we were going. And so we left her with friends who loved her and cared for her, and she had a wonderful time, right? And we returned from Iceland, and Colette went to pick up Suki and brought Suki back to our home. And I was very excited to see Suki because I love Suki very much, and I missed her. And I knew she was coming home, so I got down. I sat on the on the floor. So she could just get right up on me. And you know what I mean? So it wasn't going to be like her jumping up and getting in trouble for jumping up and all stuff. I just got right <laughs> down. I was all ready for it. With, like with my arms out, you know, on the living room floor, looking at the door as the door opened up. And she just kind of trotted by me and trotted around and then walked through the rest of the house, was happy to see everybody else and completely ignored me, completely rejected me. And it was it was probably not until, you know, a couple hours later that like after I pet her a little bit, she started to, to kind of warm up again and probably not till like the next day that it was like normal again. Right. Mm -hmm. And I felt I felt rejected because <laughs> this is this dog who has a, a more like a more straightforward affection for me than probably any other creature in the world. And evidently was just like either hurt or mistrustful. Or, or something, but just... I think she was punishing you. Or punishing me, right? Like, just sort of, I don't know if dogs have that kind of intention <laughs> behind their actions, right? But what she normally tries to communicate, which is all this ebullient, overflowing affection, and that she shows to strangers who show up. She was just like, huh, oh, you're here. Oh, interesting. <laughs> right? And just walked around me, and, and I felt rejected. 
So Vanessa, the etymology of rejection, the re, like kind of in the word return, that just means like to go back or like reversal or whatever. It's like a reflective kind of prefix. The ejection part comes from the old Latin word to throw. So like to throw something back. In fact, it was it was often <laughs> it was often originally used as like a term for vomiting because like you're actually throwing something out of yourself. You're actually yeah. there's like a physical sense to it. But I think the way we think about rejection now is less physical, like less like yeah. a physical throwing of something away, returning something that's been given to us and more emotional. Right. It's like, oh, I'm turning away from you or turning you away from me because I reject this thing. Right. And it gets more complicated there when it's emotional because. Obviously, I'm I can't I'm not trying to anthropomorphize my dog too much or try to imagine human feelings into her canine experience. But like clearly the dog still has affection for me. And even in that moment, I think the dog had affection for me. But there was kind of some kind of rejected intimacy or closeness, which was part of that, right? And so the idea of throwing something back at someone when it has to do with emotions makes everything a lot more complicated. I have far fewer concerns about anthropomorphizing Suki. And so I think she was like, you rejected me. I rejected you. You don't need me. I don't need you. And then. But why did she need everybody else in the house? She was happy to see everybody else. Why me? Because she was like, we never needed each other. We like each other. But you, Matt, (laughs) I thought we had an agreement and you left and that's fine. And then she just was so happy to see you. She let go of that feeling of rejection. Oh, so you're saying she felt rejected first. Yes. This is a retaliatory rejection. This is a retaliatory rejection, which I think is one of the things about rejection. We're going to see that in the chapter, right? Haggard feels rejected, so he rejects Hogwarts, right? Like, this is one of the things that we do when we feel rejected. Interesting. In Suki's defense, you rejected her first. Well, Matt, I will remind everybody what happens in this chapter if you don't mind counting me in. I'd love to count you in. This is my first 30-second recap in a while. I'm a little rusty. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> Three, two, one, go. So Harry is like, oh, I should be worried about the second task, but am I worried about the second task? And he's just like living his life. An article comes out about Hagrid saying that he's a giant. They're very confused as to how Rita Skeeter got that information. Hagrid has locked himself in his cabin. Harry goes to Hogsmeade. He runs into Ludo Bagman, who's like, I'll help you cheat. And Harry's like, uh, no thanks. Weird. And they go to Hagrid's hut and they're like, enough, Hagrid. You have to get out. And Dumbledore opens the door and it's time for Hagrid to get back to reality. And... You know, reverse that feeling of rejection. I went over a little <laughs> it bit. It sounds like at you got very end. sad at the end. Well, <laughs> I got sad that I didn't have a strong finish. Oh, you you looked you looked like Suki when she came home from. from the, you're just I, like, oh. I feel like I did a great floor routine, and then I didn't stick the landing. Anyway, Matt, best of luck to you as you stick the landing. On your mark, get set, go. So Ron and Hermione are not fighting anymore, but it's awkward. And then they go down to class. It's the day after Christmas. But then they go down to class. And then uh, they find this article. Balfoy's very happy. And uh, Hagrid's been outed as, as a dragon. Uh, not a dragon. As a giant. And then they go to Hogsmeade. And then they see Little Bagman with some goblins. And then they see Rita. And Hermione's like, Rita, you're the worst. And then they, she runs with them all the way back to Hagrid's hut. And they get inside. And Dumbledore's there. And Dumbledore's like, you should listen to these children. And Hagrid's like, OK, I'll try to. But also, I'm not interested in, in what's-her-name anymore, Maxine. And also, you should win, Harry. Oh, my God, Matt. Imagine how happy Hagrid would be if he did get out it as a dragon. I know. He would love He's like, right? what? I'm a dragon? <laughs> I know. <laughs> He'd be so great. That would be nothing but good news. So, Vanessa, there's 
a lot of rejection in this chapter, actually. And the place I want to start is with Harry. I think we'll probably end up focusing most of our conversation on Hagrid because a lot of the theme of rejection circulates around the stuff that's going on with him. But just right at the beginning of the chapter, there's this really interesting scene. So if you remember, if our listeners remember, at the end of the last chapter, right when they're like departing from the Yule Ball, Cedric gives this hint to Harry and says, hey, listen, go take the egg up to the the bath and hold it underwater, all this stuff. Because a hint doesn't say exactly what's going to happen, but gives what we find out, you know, later on is a pretty helpful hint about how he can figure out what this screaming egg is saying to him. But Harry rejects that help. And if I'm going to paraphrase, like from the text, it says something like, you know, he thought that probably Cedric was helping him in turn, but out of jealousy, he doesn't want to take Cedric's advice because Cedric and Cho are an item now. They're walking around and holding hands. It looks like they're starting some kind of relationship. And it's the relationship that that Harry wants. He's got a crush on Cho. And so like, he doesn't want to think that Cedric could figure it out and he couldn't figure it out. He doesn't want to like, even anonymously give Cedric the satisfaction of being right in this case. Like he wants to figure it out himself. And so he doesn't accept Cedric's advice. He rejects Cedric's advice and even starts to pretend like it's not helpful advice. Like at least I told him it was actually a dragon. He can't just tell me what it says. Like why does he have to give me all these weird hints? I mean, when I was talking before about how rejection, when it's less physical, like physically rejecting something and becomes emotional rejection, it gets really complicated because what the emotion, the affective experience that Harry is actually having is jealousy and uncertainty and insecurity. But what is coming out as is effectively an unwise decision to reject some pretty helpful advice. Yeah, it's also a funny rejection. And it's a rejection that I sympathize with because part of the reason for rejection often is to weaponize it and make the other person feel rejected. And Cedric doesn't yeah. know about this rejection. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you you said this too, but like, it's a rejection only in Harry's head, which is just like a such a, it's just such a funny way right. to reject someone. That's what I mean. It really is interior. He's protecting his own feelings. He yeah. doesn't want to think that he can't get there himself. And so he rejects, right? Yeah. I mean, it would be like if Suki showed up in my story and on the outside acted super happy to see me, but on the inside was actually not happy to see me. Like that, that would, that's what Harry's doing right here. And it's just interesting. I, I think that this chapter is making me realize how rejection, a feeling of rejection leads to a desire to reject, you know, and, and Harry's triangulating it here, but he feels rejected yeah, by Cho. Yeah. And so he's like, yeah, you're right. Well then forget you, Cedric, right? Like, yeah. And so rejection, if we feel rejected, it makes us feel very vulnerable because we don't necessarily yeah. know why, right? Yeah. You know, you don't get a job and you're not quite sure what part of you got rejected or if even you were really rejected or they just like decided to hire from within, right? Like there's a mystery yeah. to rejection. And so you put your guard up because you're like, I don't know what yeah. it was about me. And so we sort of put up this Teflon. And so then it's like, well, I don't want I, I don't want any help from you, right? Yeah. Rejection begets more rejection. Right. You feel very vulnerable when rejected. One does feel very vulnerable, even right. if the reasons are good and maybe even ones you agree with, right? I, you know, we had some hiring once in an office I worked at, and a person who was overqualified applied for a job and we turned that person down. But because of that person, we ended up creating another position. Right. And then 
that person applied to that job. But I'm sure in the interim, that person felt very rejected. But it wasn't, the reason was not like, oh, you're not good enough. It was like, oh my gosh, you're so great. We need these skills. Let's create a different position. Right. You know, it, it was just a it, rejection, but it always feels very, very vulnerable. One of the reasons I bring up the Cedric example is because Harry rejects other assistants in this chapter as well. We spoke in our 30-second recaps about how at one point in the chapter, Harry, Ron, and Hermione end up at Hogsmeade, and they go to the pub, the Three Broomsticks, and Harry sees Ludo Bagman there, and Ludo pulls him aside and offers to kind of, you know, cheat for him to say like, oh, did you figure out the egg? I can help with the egg. Do you want some help? I really want Hogwarts to win. And Harry rejects this offer but this time was sort of Harry's classic integrity because like the first question he asked Ludo is, did you tell Cedric? Right. He can tell that Ludo's up to something else and wants to poke a hole in his argument. And when Ludo says, no, I didn't, Harry's like, then I don't want your advice. I don't want your help. And I'm sure Ludo's advice would have been helpful, right? Right. But, but Harry rejects it not because of vulnerability or jealousy, the way he rejects the other advice. This advice he rejects because it's unfair, because it's, it, because it's cheating, right? I don't think that that's why Harry rejects his advice. So interesting. Okay. Harry smells something fishy. The reason that he asks Ludo, are you also offering Cedric this advice, is because he's asking, he's trying to suss out what's actually going on with Bagman. He's yeah. like, okay, if you really want Hogwarts to win, then are you helping both of us? And I think that this is Harry's really good judge of character and that he's yeah. like, you have an ulterior motive here, and I don't trust it. And Harry, yeah. I, I am sad this 14-year-old already has a sense that adults could possibly have an ulterior motive other than their desire to watch him succeed. And I think that actually giving Harry a helping hand because he didn't even put his name in the goblet would be a really fair thing to do to sort of like level the playing field. But I think that Harry is rejecting being used. Yeah. And part of what's interesting to me about that is he doesn't really know what he's rejecting. He's just like, I don't trust you. And that's all that matters. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Do you think that, and this is a pure hypothetical, yeah. but if Bagman says, yes, I did tell Cedric, do you think Harry says, okay, then tell me? Or do you think he, I mean, but then I think it reverts back to his jealousy because he's like, oh, that's how Cedric knew. <laughs> right. I am better, right? Or whatever, right? I, yeah, it gets really complicated when emotions are involved. <laughs> right. I think it depends, <laughs> right. right? If Bagman, yeah. Yeah. if because that would make Bagman a more trustworthy guy or it would or maybe not a more trustworthy guy. It would make Bagman's intentions purer or clearer. Whereas maybe, but I still think Harry rejects him because I think that he has this suspicion of adults, of their reliability. Right. Because of the environment he's grown up in. He doesn't trust yeah. that they always have his best interests at heart. And so even the fact that the person who's in charge of this competition is giving information to others in the competition, I think he would be suspicious and be like, no I'm thanks. still all set. Yeah. yeah, right. That's interesting because it seems like integrity is really closely a lot like one's personal integrity gets really intertwined with one's judgment of other people's integrity, right? That's interesting. Well, the other thing is, is that when Hagrid offers him advice to cheat, he takes it. Yeah, that's true. He's not rejecting the advice. He's rejecting Bagman. And he's not, you know, in this moment, he's not rejecting help from Cedric. He's rejecting Cedric. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Prose is made for people. Not hair and skin types, personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I used the review and refine feature, and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. You know, Vanessa, you brought up Hagrid and we talked at the at the top of this conversation about how so much of the theme of rejection circulates around Hagrid. Why don't you start us talking about Hagrid? Because I really want to make sure we talk about that. Yeah. So Hagrid, the chapter is called Rita Skeeter's Scoop, but I, to some extent it's being cheeky, right? Because what it should be called is like Hagrid's exposure, right? That Hagrid being outed about something that he does not want to be shared about him. And he, right, feels preemptively rejected by the wizarding world with this information out there because the wizarding world does reject giants. Giants don't have as as many rights, right? Like giants are disenfranchised. They are discriminated against, right, structurally. And so because this part of Hagrid's identity that is structurally rejected comes to the fore, Hagrid is now rejecting the entire world. He has given up on the world. And the thing that he says is, I'm about to get rejected by the whole Hogwarts community. Everyone is going to want me to leave. Yeah, And so he is sort of taking himself out of the game, he thinks, ahead of time. But it comes from this feeling of rejection. I agree, Vanessa. I also think, though, kind of like with Harry, that the motivations behind that rejection are complicated. I think there's sort of a, I'll hurt you before you hurt me. Yeah. Kind of thing. Or I'll turn away from you before you turn away from me. I think that we see that especially clearly towards the end of the chapter when it seems like he's dealing with lots of emotions towards lots of individuals. But one of the specific rejections he's feeling is not just his out into the wizarding world, but it's Madame Maxime also. Yeah. Turning him away. Right. In the last chapter, he was has a big crush on her. Like it's been a kind of a point of humor in the text for several chapters. And he finally makes this kind of confession to her, thinking it's going to build a relational bridge between them. And instead, she rejects him. 
like literally, like the physical and emotional, walks away from him, turns him away. Yeah. And he walks away crestfallen and hurt. And at the end of chapter four, while he's muttering with the children around him, he says, there's some who'd always hold it against you. There's some who'd even pretend they just had big bones rather than stand up and say, I am what I am and I'm not ashamed. Never be ashamed, my old dad used to say. There's some who hold it against you, but they are not worth bothering with. Mm. Right? So, like, you can see, like, in his head, he's thinking about what Maxime said to him. Yeah. And he's, he, you know, he's been rejected by her. He still obviously has feelings with her because he feels rejected by her. But he wants to reject her response to him. Right? Yeah. That means, so now I'm saying, oh, I need to turn away from her. Like, my old dad used to say, these kinds of people are not worth bothering with. Like, you can see, like, how he is... He's trying to protect himself and restore himself by turning away from the things that are hurting him, turning them away from him. And one of the things that's hurting him is, a, you know, what Maxime said to him and her reaction to him, yeah. even if he does still have affection for her. And I think it's analogous to what he's doing with Hogwarts, right? I think he still has affection for Hogwarts. I think this is, you know, this is part of the the complicated sort of affection that all of us have for institutions which are complicated and have bad histories, Right. Like, there's part of me that thinks that he's believes kind of like Lupin in the last chapter that the best thing for Hogwarts is if I leave. The best thing for Dumbledore is if I leave. I will cause a scandal if I stay. And so I'm rejecting Hogwarts to protect it. But as you say, also bound up in that, there's also part of him that's like, I don't want to get hurt by Hogwarts. I know who the people who right. love the school are and what they will think of me if they know I'm a giant or part giant. And so before they can hurt me, I'm going to turn away from it. And like all those things, the self-preservation and preservation of the institution, an institution that wants to hurt him, like it's a very complicated thing. And one of the things that I love about this depiction of Hagrid is that he just needed some time. Yeah. Right? He wasn't ready to let, you know, Hermione, Ron, and Harry in. And he wasn't ready to let Dumbledore in. He was embarrassed and that needed to heal before he could figure out the right things to reject, right? He was rejecting help for a little while. And I just think that that is okay to take some time and lick your wounds and figure out what's what. And now he's reemerging and the things that he's choosing to now reject are the right things. He's going to reject this idea that Madame Maxime offered to him. He's going to reject sort of the people who are rejecting him at Hogwarts. He's able to take this information and make the right decisions. Yeah. It's also important to say that, like, that Dumbledore rejects Hagrid's resignation, right? right. Yeah, Dumbledore thinks that's not in the best interest of Hagrid or of the institution. Whether it's in the best interest of Hagrid is maybe an open question because Hagrid shouldn't have to go through this abuse if he doesn't want to, right? Yeah. But you can see that you know that there are complicated things going on. People are trying to preserve different things, reject the things that are harmful while holding on to the things that can build us up. But sometimes those things overlap so significantly that that it's hard to know what you're turning away from and why. Well, and I will say this should have been an opportunity to return Hagrid to Gamekeeper and reinstate him as a full wizard, but maybe take away his professorship, right? Because we see in this chapter the benefits of Hagrid as gamekeeper. While he's not doing this job, the Bobotan horses are shivering. Professor Grubblyplank is not taking good care of these horses, but she's a better professor, and she's just a better teacher. And to me, this shows that trying to repair rejection, you know, and I've talked about this before— By offering Hagrid the professorship because he was expelled and disenfranchised 50 years ago, like, that is not an appropriate reparation. And so 
I don't know. It's just interesting in this chapter that we are reminded of Hagrid's tremendous value as a gamekeeper, but that he's not a good teacher. Yeah. And we don't all have to be good at everything. And I think you're right. They're like, they're compensating for the wrong thing. Right. Like, give Hagrid his wand back. And that would do more to affirm and build him up. Right? To reject everything that's rejected him than making a professor, but not a fully-fledged wizard. Right? Yeah. It's a mess. Yeah. Let's talk about that. This kind of magical creature, giant wizard thing. One of the things Hermione says in this chapter in reaction to kind of everyone else's reaction about the fact that Hagrid's part giant is she says they can't all be horrible. It's just bigotry, isn't it? And this is an analogy that happens like throughout the series of like the exclusion or the judgment or the caricature or characterization of other magic endowed creatures than wizards as being, you know, oppressed and mistreated. And they are in these in these books. But I also think there's a limit to that analogy and actually maybe some possible harm that goes along with that analogy because race is not an actual biological factual category. Like the differences that are attributed to race do not actually exist in the world, right? Do not exist in any factual sense. They are entirely socially constructed. And the fact that bigotry is based upon these social constructions is part of the violence of racism. Whereas a werewolf or a giant actually has real differences. Now that doesn't mean that they deserve to be oppressed. I'm not saying that, right? But like, Right. Like the recognition of difference is different than the invention of difference. (laughs) Right. And I think it's a really important question for justice to think about how we treat those who are different from us. I'm not talking about between humans because humans are not substantially socially different. Mm -hmm. I mean, like creatures that are different from us have different gifts. How we treat them justly is a different question than how do we treat those who are part of our own species justly right like there because there are real differences like what suki needs as a dog is different than what i need that's why i had the caution about anthropomorphizing her earlier right right? like the giants and goblins and elves are like humanoid they resemble humans but they're also different and i think that we can ask the question of justice without pretending that that is a simple analogy for racial bigotry especially when the, the root error and wrong of racial bigotry is that there is a fundamental biological difference. Yeah, it's it's a really poor metaphor that is troubling in these books. And I just think that, you know, one of the ways that we're treating these books as sacred is through critical engagement. And I just think that there are other fantasy and sci-fi series that handle these metaphors with more precision. You know, I'm personally thinking about the Octavia Butler, like Dawn trilogy, you know, where These metaphors just, like, map better. And, yeah, I feel like this is a moment where it's sloppily done and we are best to question the use of bigotry here. Yeah. Yeah. It's now time for our spiritual practice. So, Matt, we are doing parties today, and I have picked a sentence just based on the fact that Victor Crumb and I share a hobby. Okay, great. So the sentence that I picked was, he was very skinny indeed, but apparently a lot tougher than he looked because he climbed up onto the side of the ship, stretched out his arms, and dived right into the lake. And... 
I, I know that Victor is doing this because he is preparing for the second task, but I love open water, cold weather swimming. I was in Lenox, Massachusetts just last week, and I went on a cold water plunge, a polar bear plunge, and it was amazing. Yeah, and we didn't talk about Kramer preparing for the second task at all. So, shot, we ask ourselves what the intended meaning of the sentence is. What have you got for us? I mean, one of the things, as you indicated in that, in your setup, one of the things that's interesting about what's actually going on in the sentence is that we don't actually know what's going on in the sentence for a couple more chapters, right? Right. So what's actually going on is Victor's diving into the lake to swim, right? He's a world-class athlete. It looks like to... Harry, Ron, and Hermione, as they go to Hogsmeade and see him doing this, it looks like he's just really interested in fitness and so tough that (laughs) if it's cold when he swims, he swims when it's cold. That's no problem, right? But as you say, what's actually going on is that he may be interested in fitness, but he's also practicing because he knows he needs to swim for the next task. And so he's, he's working on his stroke. Yeah. I mean, and the thing that's striking to me as someone who goes on cold water swims is his lack of pause. Like, I I love a cold water plunge, but right before I jump in, it does take up, like, you know, it takes screwing my courage, right? Like, I need a minute. And he just climbs up, stretches out his arms, and dives right into the lake. And there's just a real resolve there. And so we're finding out something about this guy, right? That he... I mean, he's he's brave. He yeah. is going after Hermione because he likes Hermione. He, you know, gets hit in the face in the Quidditch World Cup. Like this courage carries across his life. I love that it's not just physical, that it's also emotional with Hermione. This is, yeah. Yeah. Remez. What's Remez? So Remez is where we pick a word and we trace it through the book. So let me read it again, Matt, and you can pick out whatever word you want. Okay. He was very skinny indeed, but apparently a lot tougher than he looked because he climbed up on the side of the ship, stretched out his arms, and dived right into the lake. To me, the interesting thing is, like, in the sentences, the kind of descriptions of his physical appearance or whatever. So, like, this, the word tougher. How about, let's think about tougher. Where does toughness show up in the the books? Oof. As soon as you say toughness, I think of Ginny, right? Like, that's one of the things we love about Ginny is that she's tough. Yeah. And yeah. it's it is one of the things that Harry likes about her that she's like not a crier like Cho. Yeah. And I'm very skeptical yeah. that like crying makes you not tough because clearly Cho Chang yeah. is like a very tough person. Yeah. When I think of toughness, I think of Ginny. She's this, you know, we have her on one of our pins is the patron saint of survivors, right? Like she gets through things yeah. and she gets yeah. up and she just keeps getting up again. Yeah. And you have Cho as the patron saint of criers, right? Right. <laughs> That's right. Which is another kind I mean, of toughness. It is another kind of toughness, right? I, I think maybe because you talked about Crumb getting hit in the face during the Quidditch World Cup, I thought about, it seems like every time Harry is winning a Quidditch match, he's also getting severely injured while yeah. winning it, but he never lets go of the snitch, right? That's the first thing I thought of. But I'm also thinking that like, one of the things that's going on in the sentence is like, oh, skinny, but tough. I mean, I don't know that one's build actually corresponds that much to toughness, yeah. but in a sentence it does, right? Right. And I'm, so I'm thinking about people that we don't expect to be tough. Like Neville is super tough. Yes. Neville puts up with so much emotionally in these books. 
and physically too, from teachers, from staff, and his classmates. But from the beginning, he's willing to stand up to folks, right? He stands up to Harry, Ron, and Hermione at the end of the first book. Yeah. He stands up to Voldemort at the end of the last book. Like, I think the average Hogwarts student surveying the students of Hogwarts would not be like, oh, Neville Longbottom, he's super tough. But right. we know, just because we have this story, that he's the one of the toughest characters. He's the least inclined to be diverted from what he thinks is the thing to do among yep. these students, perhaps among all of them, right? And that's that's yep. what makes him tough. Well, great. Well, so the question now is, Drosh, what sermon would you preach on this? So I'll read yeah. it one more time. He was very skinny indeed, but apparently a lot tougher than he looked because he climbed up onto the side of the ship, stretched out his arms, and dived right into the lake. I mean, I think I would preach something along the lines of where I was getting to in the last step in Remez is something about how toughness does not correspond to physical build. Right. Or even to the things that culturally we tend to attribute or associate with toughness, right? That toughness is, is much more about kind of resolve and determination. You know, I was in the Navy for a while, and as part of the training, we got to meet sailors from different parts of the Navy. And at one point early in my naval career, I was talking to a bunch of SEALs, you know, like these mm-hmm. these special warfare people who go through the most demanding training. And, you know, we were just kind of talking to them about the training they go through. And, and all of them, like 201, said, like, the people who get through are not the strongest or the fittest. It's the people who just have a kind of the mental sort of ability to, like, do the thing that needs to be done and just do it, right? Which is kind of how you describe Crumb jumping into this cold lake or how we described Neville just kind of doing whatever needs to be done. It, it's not it's not about necessarily one's physical attributes. It's about mental resources, determination. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I, I would talk about what I think toughness actually is, which yeah. is deciding that something is important and figuring out a way to do it regardless yeah. of how difficult yeah. or easy it is. Because toughness, for toughness's sake, whatever that toughness means is like pretty meaningless, right? But the reason that Crumb is willing to do this is because he has a purpose. He, you know, he wants to win the Four Wizard Tournament. And so he's willing to do what it takes to do that. And I just think that that should be the definition of toughness, of you think of what you want to do and yeah, whatever you take rather than I think sometimes people do things just to prove that they're tough. And I think toughness for toughness's sake is not actually toughness. Yeah, that's a great sermon, right? Thank you. It's not an end in itself, like demonstrating one's vigor is not an end in itself. Vigor is only in the purpose of some other goal. Yeah, right. Well, the last step is sewed, Matt. I'll read the sentence one more time and we'll see if a secret emerges. He was very skinny indeed, but apparently a lot tougher than he looked because he climbed up onto the side of the ship, stretched out his arms, and dived right into the lake. You know, Vanessa, you said something in our last live show, which has stuck with me about Pardes, because I always complain about this so because it means secret. And I'm trying to think, like, how can I know the secret? Like, I can only know what's actually there. But you said something in our live show that it can also be the thing that's shaken loose. Right. Like our thinking and talking about it, something has shaken loose in my thinking about this. And so that's why, like what I'm going to say now is not a secret. It's something I would have known, but it is it has come loose of other ideas for me in a fruitful way, which is just how 
toughness is gendered, right? Like, I mean, it's obvious. That's not a secret. Everyone knows that. But when you describe toughness as like making a decision and just doing what it takes, then crying can be very tough. Because if crying is what you need to do the thing you need to do, then you are doing the thing that it takes to do yeah. the thing you need to do, right? Yeah. And it's like all these, all these physical behaviors, which culturally and for kind of gendered reasons are associated with weakness are actually displays of folks being tough, right? Like if you had told me before we had this conversation that toughness is gendered as a category, of course, I would agree with that, right? But when I actually think through it with you, I see like, oh, a person who cries and does what they're doing is super tough. That's that's how you know they're tough because they're doing it and crying rather than stopping it. Yeah. and, And in order to stop crying, that's, yeah, that's what shook loose for me. Yeah, the thing that that got shaken loose for me, Matt, is this indeed. He was very skinny indeed. And indeed seems to be validating something, which means like either that, oh, if you're skinny in a certain way, you're definitely, we're going to definitely think about you in one way or another, or that people have talked about how skinny he is and have been like, ah, I don't know, he's kind of scrawny. And that just makes me think of how how we really don't ever know each other. That, like, you can look at someone and think that you have a sense of who they are, but, like, you really... We don't know anything about yeah. Victor Crumb. Right? Which, like, one of the lines right after this scene is Hermione going, he's very nice, actually. Right? Like, you don't yeah. know him. You don't know him. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever gone to Etymology Corner twice in an episode, but, oh. you know, the word indeed, it just means like in act, like it's proven in how he indeed. behaves. Indeed, yeah. And you can think here, I mean, not the skinniness is not what's true indeed. It's toughness is what's true indeed, right? Yep. Like he dives into the water. Who cares what his body's like? He dives into the water and does it, <laughs> right? Indeed, in act, this is tough. Oh, yeah. I love that. Oh, what a great part is, Vanessa. Yeah. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This week's voicemail is from Ellen. 
Salam alaikum, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. I was listening to your episode about Barty Crouch Jr. as uh, Mad Eye Moody and was struck by something. Um, Barty Crouch Jr. seems to me uh, to be a person with a very troubled past, very destructive past, and had lived a very miserable existence. And for him to be moody for a while might even be like an escape for him or like a refuge into somebody else's body. Um, it reminded me of an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer where the uh, the bad slayer, Faith, gets to be Buffy for a while and she's met with respect and awe and kindness and uh, she meant to cause trouble and she ends up saving the day because of how transforming that experience was. And it reminded me of um, a time in my life when I was very sad about not having good friendships and my friends not showing up for me. And somewhere along the way, I realized that maybe I wasn't a very good friend. Um, so I've practiced being a better friend and found that people um, show up for me uh, more. And uh, for Barty Crouch Jr. to be moody and be met with respect and be part of a community might even be a blessing for him that he didn't expect. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, and thank you for a great podcast. <laughs> Take care. Ellen, thank you so much for this voicemail. I love this point, And it just makes the fact that Barty Crouch Jr. doesn't take this opportunity is even more tragic. This could have been something that he let change him, but instead he still hands Harry over to Voldemort. I love your point that we can allow ourselves to be changed by things. And sometimes we walk into a room thinking we're there for one reason, but we're actually there for another. I know that the place where I experience this the most, Matt, and I would imagine it's similar for you, is in teaching where I'm like, I'm the teacher. And then as the cliche goes, but it's really borne out is true for me. I'm like, oh, I learned a lot. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and thank you also, Ellen, for this reading. And also kudos to you for, you know, some self-reflection and for showing up for your friends and for being a good friend. I mean, I'm glad that you were rewarded for that and having them show up for you too. You deserved it regardless. And I'm glad that you're giving it to your friends now and feeling some reciprocity in that. It is now time for us to remember members of our community who've been loved and lost. Suzanne, who is 81, who is a mother, grandmother, and voracious reader. Teresa Morgan, who is 59 and the most optimistic woman. Edith Granigan, who is 84, a grandma, teacher, and crafter with inconvenient timing. Raymond Borsky, who is 93, a beloved grandfather and a bad joke teller. Holly Fort, who is 15, 
an amazing friend and book nerd. May their memories be a blessing. Matt, it's now time for us to offer blessings for a character. Who would you like to bless this week? Mine is pretty straightforward and obvious, but I couldn't not do it. I would like to bless Hagrid. On my reading, and maybe this is more projection than anything else, on my reading, the most significant hurt he's feeling right now is the rejection from Madame Maxime. It's the romantic one that that pierces the heart the most directly. Although I'm sure everything else is piling on and making it worse. That sucks. That's a that's a bad feeling. All of us have felt it, and so there's solidarity in feeling it, but it's a terrible feeling, and I feel bad for Hagrid. So bless yeah, him. He made and him bless move. anybody else who's going through heartbreak. Yeah. Amen. Who are you blessing? Well, mine is just the inverse. I want to bless Harry. He's so kind about Hagrid, and I love this. He's just so loyal. He has a different reaction to Ron and Hermione at this article, right? Ron and Hermione... Their first reaction is both like, how did Rita Skeeter find out about this? And Harry's reaction is like, who cares? I'm worried about Hagrid. And there's just like a real clarity of of love and concern. And so I just, you know, we see Harry's goodness really shine in this chapter. Yeah. Vanessa, next week we're going to be reading book four, chapter 25, The Egg and the Eye, through the theme of contemplation. I will think carefully about that, Matt. Before we say goodbye this week, we have to thank everyone who donated to our On the Rise fundraiser. We ended up raising over $11,000, and there are several of you who donated $100 or more, and we said that we would shout out your name, and we're not only fulfilling that promise, but we are fulfilling it with glee because we are just so grateful You all helped support this wonderful organization that means so much to all of us. So here are the names of all of you who joined us in donating $100 or more. Alexandra Fussell, Amanda Lindley, Anjali Anand, Caroline Henderson, Casper Turkile, Cody Brown, Colette Potts, Danielle Anzik, Diana Leary, Donna Hoff, Elizabeth Germano, Emily Barter, Emily Peterson, Emily Smith, Emma Roundtree, Erica Lee French. Erica Schmid, Haley Hildebrand, Jamie Alberts, Jen Chow Fontan, Laura Dong, Laura Piervincenzi, Luisa Sobrera, Margaret Service, Michelle Pegler, Nancy Wood, Natalie Benson, Sarah Kleeman, Serena Palumbo, Stacey Van Tassel, Stephanie Paulsell, and Vardit and Richard Samuels. Thank you all so much. This fundraiser was a really tremendous success, and you all made a real difference in the lives of people in need here in Cambridge. We are so grateful. Everybody, we have a couple of amazing pilgrimages out. And of course, you can still join us at summer camp. You can find ad-free episodes of our podcast on patreon.com. And you can find ad-free episodes on Apple. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. And our engineer is Malika Gumpankum. We are edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. And our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. We are distributed by Acast. 
Thanks this week to Ellen, Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Margaret H. Willison, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Casper Trakyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones. And Matt, thank you for doing such a great job while I was gone. Vanessa, thank you for coming back. <laughs> You're welcome. It's so nice to meet you, Vanessa. It's lovely to meet you, Mike. So let me tell you, this is a podcast where we read Harry Potter as a sacred text. Oh, fascinating. You should try it. It'll be it'll be exciting. <laughs> I am so I'm very excited.